Welcome, everybody, um, to the final 2016 review panel. It's lovely to see you here this evening. We've got a packed program, um, and let's get down to business. Anybody here at the review panel for their first time? Wonderful, lovely, welcome uh, for your benefit, and just to refresh the memories of uh, our more regular attendees. The format of the panel is that we have PowerPoint, uh, or we have some videos of the shows that we've all been to see, um, shows of Ai Weiwei uh, and Mark Leckie, uh, Sasha Braunig and Daniel Horowitz um, around three of the five boroughs. Um, and we, as a panel, discuss the shows one by one and at selected times in the course of the evening bring in our audience for your comments and responses. So uh, simplicity itself. Um, my first pleasurable task is to introduce uh, this evening's speakers, my, my guests on the panel. Uh, Ryan Lee Wong uh, is a writer for The Village Voice and Hyperallergic. Uh, he's also a curator. He's organizing an exhibition that uh, opens next year at the Chinese American Museum in Los Angeles that looks at Asian American social and political movements. Uh, Martha Schwendener is an art critic at the New York Times. Uh, she's also a visiting professor at New York University. Um, and she has um, a book in the works um, on Wilhelm Flusser, the uh, Brazilian photo photography theorist. Um, and uh, uh, that is based on her um, doctoral dissertation on the same subject. And uh, Seth um, Rodney, who, who also writes at, at Hyperallergic, um, is... Uh, uh, a scholar on the subject of museums, has his uh, PhD from Birkbeck College in London, um, and um, uh, that book is uh, uh, due uh, soon from uh, Routledge, and uh, he is uh, uh, an instructor at the Parsons School of Art. So, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome your panel. <laughs> Wonderful. So, um, we have some treats in store for you, panelists. We have the privilege for these swivel chairs that we can become audience members uh, with just a 180-degree turn. And we're ready to see our first video, which uh, shows us some exhibitions of Ai Weiwei. Ai Weiwei's current New York City exposure fits the Chinese artist's colossal international reputation. He has two exhibitions at three galleries in four venues and we're discussing all of them here tonight. Laundromat at Jeffrey Deitch in Soho relates to the activist artist's concern with the global refugee crisis. Since the return of his passport last year following his detention by the Chinese government, I has travelled to 20 camps in Africa, Asia and Europe. Laundromat gathers over 2,000 items of discarded clothing from the Idomeni camp along the Greek-Macedonian border that the artist has meticulously cleaned and organised, now hung on racks around the gallery. The floor is decorated with blow-ups of his WhatsApp news feed, with an array of stories and opinion pieces relevant to the crisis, while the walls are decked with photos of refugees from his Instagram account. The second show, titled Ai Weiwei 2016, Roots and Branches, is spread between Mary Boone and Listen Galleries. In their uptown location, Boone has a circular floor piece hugging a supporting column in the gallery made from 40,000 spouts 
broken off of porcelain teapots. Listen, under the high line, features felled tree trunks and branches cast in iron, displayed amidst exposed beams from the high line, and a new wallpaper work. Boone in Chelsea has a 25-foot tree made up of fragments of felled trees from southern China that the artist has bolted together to form a healthy new whole. Ai's famous early image of the artist dropping a Han Dynasty urn is recreated in heavily pixelated form out of Lego. Another Lego work mimics the high chroma of Warhol portraits. Wonderful. And thank you to Miguel Gesso for his videos of this evening. A graduate of Parsons School of Design. Perhaps he came under your tutelage, Seth. I don't... Uh, <laughs> he's... Uh, no, no, not my direct tutelage, but thank you. Right. Uh, the, the, the pedagogy to which you contributed somehow filtered down to the man who made the videos. <laughs> cool. Well, Ai Weiwei, now, there's some reputation. Some artists simply have a kind of stature um, that even the most intrepid critic feels in some way intimidated by, um, uh, either because of the overwhelming beauty of the work or uh, some other dimension or aspect of what they do just makes you pause very carefully before weighing in with anything other than adulation. And Ai Weiwei, as a member of the quote-unquote art world, it's nice that we have uh, a, an art world personage who is um, a global superstar for his stance as a dissident uh, and for his chutzpah and his, uh, his, his willingness to take on the causes that really matter. Uh, refugee crisis, for instance. Um, but what does this really do for the art? I mean, does, does, is, is art at the service of a great noble cause? Or do we find a great noble cause actually maybe shuts down the possibilities of uh, connoisseurship? Do we, do we feel stupid looking at an Ai Weiwei and commenting on whether it works or not as art when it's Ai Weiwei and it's really an opportunity to think about something bigger and better than art, like, for instance, refugees? Um, Ryan, is this, a, is this a dilemma that you've ever felt with, with Ai and, and, and his work, or um, am I barking up the wrong felled tree? <laughs> <laughs> Good pun. Um, is anyone here not familiar with Ai Weiwei's work? Um, well, they're all familiar now, because they've seen uh, the video. Okay. So, so um, yeah, I think, I think you've raised a really valid point. I think um, Ai Weiwei has really created an absolutely new role of the artist in the 21st century. Um, I don't think there's any artist living today who has the kind of international stature, not only for what he produces as art objects, but who he is as a person. Uh, I think probably a lot of you are familiar with his Twitter accounts. A lot of you maybe have seen the documentary about him, Ai Weiwei Never Sorry. And um, I, would, I guess I would kind of challenge some of the dichotomies you're raising, David, because I don't know if there is necessarily a clear separation in... Um, the contemporary world between art and fame. Um, and I definitely don't think there's a separation between art and politics. Um, what I struggle with with these exhibitions is that Ai Weiwei actually made his reputation because he was directly persecuted by the Chinese government. And he was very creative in publicizing his own case as an illustration of the kind of uh, censorship that goes on within China today. 
um, I think the issue he's facing now is now that he has his passport back, he can travel, and he is an international art star. What does he do with that social and cultural capital? Um, and I'm not fully convinced that he's found his new path yet. Um, I think the Roots and Branches shows didn't, to me, um, reveal that much about contemporary politics or his own life. And um, I think in many ways, the Laundromat project is very moving. I think it's a moving gesture to wash these clothes and to present them. Um, and I am very curious to see what else you can do with that. What else you can do with this fame? Um, is presenting that exhibition enough to actually affect change uh, in our global stance towards the refugee crisis in a meaningful way? That's the question I'm concerned about. Um, uh, Martha, do you find yourself viewing in particular, let's start with laundromat at Jeffrey Deitch, um, the clothing, the learning from the video uh, and, and seeing in the video how he goes through that process of, of cleaning the clothes and then experiencing those racks of clothes neatly organized and labeled and in following their own kind of sartorial taxonomy. Uh, do, we, do we feel, um, is, is there some sense of a kind of shamanistic quality in the, in the act of that washing? Or is that just a sort of a gesture or posture that we're very familiar with from uh, uh, half a century plus since the Fluxus movement and as a strategy for um, putting together an installation? What, what's the feeling that you, what, what feelings did you have with the clothes there in that gallery? Um, well, first of all, I thought the laundromat part was the best part. You know, the other two, I, I could take it or leave it. Um, whatever you, what did you just say? That, yeah, it's completely, you know, there's nothing new about it. Um, in terms of shamanistic, you keep reading on the wall, Ai Weiwei dispatched assistants to do this. <laughs> a lot of dispatching assistants, and then you see the, the assistants doing all the work. Well, in fairness, he, like he couldn't leave China at the time he was dispatching the assistants. He, he but I mean, I think yes. there's, in general, a lot of dispatching right. assistants. And so it's sort of like, at this point, it's Ai Weiwei, Inc. You know, I mean, we're aware of that. We know it, you know. Um, I cheated and read Roberta's review today. I did not read it before I went, but, you know, I was also happy I didn't have to write about it because I just didn't <laughs> want to have to deal with it for the same reasons that you said. Um, and it's so funny because she used the word generic, and I was like, that's, e that, well, that's why she's Roberta. I was like, that's exactly it. And then what I wanted to read, one of my favorite reviews that she ever wrote was about Zhang Wan, about that giant... Taxidermy thing and the Guggenheim, yeah. right? And um, because it was so funny how she was making fun of it being like big, you know, like if you don't really have that much to say, just big. And this is all like big, 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 super size. They're, t you know, 2000 news reports, all these garments, all these people. Um, and it's so it's this kind of supersizing notion. <coughs> but the funny thing is, in that review, um, she used the word generic again. So I think basically it is a kind of generic conceptualism. Um, what I would say in terms of, um, you know, the refugee crisis, I just read an article two days ago, it's, they, it's approximately like 65 million people on the move, you know? I mean, the more, and according to 
the paper I write for more than any time since 1945. It's depressing. It's overwhelming. I think I think he is an amazing, you know, sort of like you know, activist artist. Um, and as, as we've already sort of heard, I would have to say, you know, the tweets and things like that are some of his most powerful work. Um, and, um, you know, yeah, I don't know, as art, you know, but it's also sometimes, you know, when people win the Nobel Prize, there's this kind of known effect that your work afterwards is just, like, not that great, you know, (laughs) so I kind of, I feel like we did it, and we did dutifully went through it, but it, it, for me, eh, you know, it's not where I would sort of point my gaze in terms of contemporary art, you know. Yes. Nonetheless, there's so many things that are interesting about him, you know, that he's not, you know, even really a Chinese artist per se. He's kind of somebody who knows that, you know, he was in New York. He knows how to speak globally. You know, he's kind of like Bono or something. So he's he's like a whole other creature. Yes, Bono was in my mind as you were talking. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but But... Seth, um, can you can you make a case for the art as art that we're missing? Or yes, yes, <laughs> yes, I can. In fact, <coughs> excuse me. When I was listening to to Ryan um, and to Martha, I thought one, you're both really insightful, um, and I can't help but be convinced by um, your point, Ryan, that there really isn't a clear demarcation between art and fame. Um, or art production and fame production, perhaps. Um, and, I, and I get what you're saying, Martha, about um, this sort of reputation, this sort of international star that Ai Weiwei is sort of flooding um, all of these shows with that sort of celebrity status. But here's the thing that, that really struck me about the, um, about the laundromat um, uh, uh, installation. There is something, two things actually, two things struck me about that show. One is that, and I remember having a conversation with someone via Twitter about this. I, I, I think I put it on Instagram and on Twitter, something about the show being overwhelming. And a friend who's an artist replied, uh, yes, but for whose benefit is this, is this work scrubbed and aestheticized? And I thought about it and I said, well, I replied, um, I think if they'd been presented as these sort of soiled and abandoned garments and objects, that, w- that would have been too sentimental. And there is something for me about the care that's given these things that are, that are essentially useless. They're not going to ever make their way back to their owners. They're abandoned, they're detritus. And yet they're washed and they're ironed and they're folded. And there's something there for me that is, and this is the second point, is a kind of emotional synecdoche. Like there's a way in which the, ev- the, the refugee crisis is overwhelming. Is that it can't really be understood. I mean, you say 65 million, but you don't, I don't know how to picture that. Like I can't even picture the number, I think it was 15,000 that were left in that particular camp <coughs> that Ai Weiwei looked at or <coughs> uh, documented. I think there were 15,000 refugees at some point bottlenecked in that camp. I, ca- I don't know how to picture that. So there's a way in which there's a kind of those clothes 
stand in, in the kind of synecdoche, they stand in for all those bodies, for all those people who are essentially stateless, homeless, who have moved to this place with literally the clothes on their back, which are no longer on their backs. There's something quite touching and... Um, Poignant, sort of, yeah, yes. rather like a Christian Boltansky um, insulation, if, if you like, um, a, a sense of our remoteness from the, the anything tangible um, in, in this very human crisis. Um, and, and perhaps the, the work says, I mean, yes, it is an aestheticized gesture, but it's that, it, to a great extent, that's what our politics are, is these gestures towards this great crisis. I mean, we, it's, it's a flood, right? And we don't quite know how to understand that or bring ourselves to um, enact policies that meaningfully address it. So that seems to me to be a kind of mirror image of that sort of failure yeah. of, 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 of our conscience and of our of our, our, our ethics. I mean, 65 million is, is the population of a very uh, credible nation state. And so have that I mean, it's, it's just an incredibly large print gesture, though. It's not sophisticated in any way whatsoever. So for a great artist, I expect a lot more, you know. I mean, it's very, like, hmm. you know... I got the clothes, I washed them, hung them up in the gallery, and it's always about accretion. You know, all these, all the, mm -hmm. you know, the little spouts, whatever. Mm -hmm. We know it bog boggles the mind, you know, to so then I'm going to recreate that by boggling your mind with tons of objects. It's not... There, but at the same time, create something very serene, almost zen-like in that circle at the Uptown Boone Gallery. Um, I just come back from Kyoto looking at um, uh, uh, rock gardens and there's it's definitely um, there's a savviness uh, with you know broken teapot spouts so it's a it's an all too Chinese subject but it's also um, it creates this field the field then puts one in mind of contemporary artists like um, uh, uh, Richard Long and, and uh, uh, Felix Gonzalez Torres. So it's it's tapping into different languages, different discourses. Mm. Um, but at the same time, it potentially, presumably, has the uh, could have the function of being an, an, an assistance to a, a meditation on on that subject. Is that true, Ryan? I mean, uh, not to s be intrusive in any way, but you you told me that. Uh, you just come back from a Zen retreat. So d does, does that resonate at all as a, as a gesture? Um, yes and no. I think actual meditation is about facing yourself and kind of your own emptiness. And uh, the problem with an object is you have to look at the object. Um, Ai Weiwei is really good at finding that instantaneous moment when you walk into a gallery and you're like, oh, that's cool. Um, I think uh, where Martha and I agree is that... Um, in these particular installations, he's kind of losing his ability to go deeper than that um, and really plunge into what can you do with these objects now? What can you really uh, meditate upon um, besides their kind of impressive visual quality? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But um, Martha says we need something more from a great artist. Um, a great artist is... Um, 
somebody who produces great art or is somebody from art who's achieved greatness. And, and that's, I think, that's where we have... It's interesting that both with, with both Lecky, uh, who we'll be talking about later, and Ai Weiwei, we've got artists who really push a kind of Joseph Boysian sense mm -hmm. of uh, the artist um, as, as being something uh, of, of distinct um, possibility that's discreet from objects or performances or gestures that that artist might put out into the world. Uh, artist and art um, uh, both becoming synonymous and being riven apart. So, um, yeah, it seems to me that actually in, his, in these shows there are visually impressive things happening. The floor paper at Laundromat and the wallpaper at the Listen Show, they, they stood out for me. The, in the Listen Show, uh, a, a black and white alternating uh, frieze that really evokes um, Assyrian uh, wall reliefs with a kind of futuristic uh, notion of um, uh, this kind of great military processions, um, uh, sort of intimidating, but at the same time kind of slick and decorative. I mean, this is, is, is there a, is this a failing or is there is a message in um, Ai's uh, decorative facility, would we say? Seth? Yeah, I think there is one. I <coughs> failing or a strength? Is it strength or weakness? I think, there's, I think there's a strength there. I think that the, what, he, what Ai Weiwei has done is he's taken this sort of, um, this sort of, um, I want to say trope, um, well, really metaphor, this notion of roots and branches, that at the root of our, and, and the freeze, the, f or the series of, um, of images of, of war making and war machines seem to me to be related to the very process by which the kind that iron tree is made, in that it is about that moment in civilization where we find a way to make weapons that are harder than the human body, right? That can cut it, slice it, harm it. That that at the root, that kind of technology gets wielded um, from that moment of that of the discovery of how to make these sorts of objects, um, precisely for war. And that seems to me to be at the root of uh, this sort of contradictory human thing that we are incredibly, I mean, we are the creatures who are incredibly inventive. We have figured out a way to ultimately control our environment, but then we're so utterly foolish mm. about the things that we invent. Um, uh, I, I, I have to admit that I liked that. I liked the sort of mm, poetic elaboration of the notion of roots and branches mm. through this notion of war. Mm -hmm. mm. Right, right. Um, yeah. Do, do do you think, Martha, when you say you know from a great artist we we expect something better? Do you, do you think that he's treading water due to his fame, or do you think that the the new platform that his um, superstardom 
responsibility gives him is is inhibiting him or is it just um, out of luck or laziness or did you feel in the earlier work of way there's something that we can can expect what do you mean the earlier work um, well, I mean he obviously had something in the beginning I you know it's just you know people get older they've got a lot of obligations you know you gotta build a stadium in Beijing and then you got to have a show and then whatever you know I, I I don't but I just it's not I didn't get into art to look at this stuff right for me this is incredibly what I call just and I probably already said it large print you know this is right. just not you know I respect your roots and branches stuff but you know I'm sitting here thinking about the war stuff you know I mean I just came back from Mexico City there was an amazing Max Beckman show you know there's just been just so much art about war across you know the the millennia that I would rather look at an Assyrian relief or you know or Roman art or you know, Dadaism is like, got teeth, you know, this doesn't have any teeth, you know, but the thing, one of the things for me is walking around in Chelsea and then realizing like these were very large, um, had a large crowd and, you know, you walked in to listen and you're like, wow, okay, here's where everybody is. Mm -hmm. It's, it's just that. And it's the same as like pop music, you know, it's like a watered down form. So, so for me, it's very watered down. I just want to ask you though, um, because the, there were differences to me among the four shows. Yeah. Were there, were there any of the four shows that were more watered down for you? There were more sort of... Um, I would say the Mary Boone ones were the most watered down. <laughs> um, it's sort of funny because I had a tree taken down today outside my window, which was like <laughs> incredibly violent. You know, there were like branches <laughs> falling and it was crashing in. I was about to go ask the neighbor if it was like safe for us to be there. So, I mean, it was really, and it was also upsetting because I've lived in this apartment a long time and now I have more light, but like there's a tree gone, you know, that for me was more poignant than seeing, oh, these are from South China. Well, <sighs> we need right. a little bit more, right. you know, I, I mean, I would say, you know, Robert Smithson's dead tree, there mm -hmm. is something really poignant about that. And that's a way simpler gesture than like, oh, I got these and then I w put them together. I, I completely agree with you. I mean, I've, I really felt that, that for me, the, the, again, I, I got into the, I, I, I realized that I am more um, susceptible to the poetic gesture that um, the, kind of the kinds of gestures that are made at Listen Gallery and Listen where they had the, um <coughs> the um, iron trees that were rusted and the wall freeze um, and uh, laundromat, which we've been discussing. Um, as opposed to the Mary Boone stuff, which felt just very like a very modernist kind yep. of uh, well, move, right? And it's also the kind of global conception. It's the problem of like, what's a global artist? How do you speak to people across all these, mm. you know, whatever? Mm. Polyglot so genericism. Yeah, so it? it's sort mm. of like, what's the guy's name at Hauser and Wirth, Sunil Gupta? Or was that, what, what was his name? I uh, mean, that Sibald Gupta. Yeah, the same, same sort of feeling where you're like, okay, you got the, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, you yeah, know. Yeah. And, uh, you know, um, you know, As I you say the crowds were prodigious. So, so well, of course, um, but the crowds always read the big novel, go to the big movie, go to, you know, buy the big album, you know, and right. as I said, 
that's not why I'm in it. But well, I was kind of like, really? We have to go see all this Ai Weiwei? So I was simultaneously resentful and grateful that I had this assignment. Otherwise, I probably would have, like, you know. I just, want, I just want to say really quickly, I think part of <coughs> my, um, my response to these shows is that I don't. Th I think this is the first Ai Weiwei shows I've ever seen. Actually, in person. Uh, oh, yeah. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I you don't think I've ever gone out of my way. But you know, he had his seeds and uh, at uh, yeah. Mary Boone not so long ago. Um, Wait, but you know, I those were all a big, a damp squib because one couldn't walk on top of them because right. of the I health see, safety yeah. issues. I think I, d I just kind of unconsciously avoided him. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, but but actually, you know, to those of you who haven't seen the shows. Um, there's one half of me that's saying, you've got plenty of time and please go and see these shows. Uh, and there's a, a mischievous other half of me that's saying, you've seen these videos, you've, you're done. Because um, <laughs> there's not that much tangibly, uh, physically, viscerally, right. Right. That, that you missed from Miguel Gesso's artful videos. So, but that's, that's my verdict. Um, uh, as I say, uh, whatever my feelings about the artist, uh, the humanist and the, uh, uh, the dissident still has uh, the majority share of my heart. So <laughs> but it's keep also, and way I way mean, part of, sorry, go ahead. No, no. But as Martha says, um, we're uh, hungry for something else. Mm. So let's look at something else. Let's now actually move ahead and look at Sasha Bronick. We've got a very full agenda this evening. <laughs> so we're now going to Queens, to PS1, uh, MoMA, to look at Sasha Bronick paintings. Sasha Braunig Shivers is the first of two exhibitions at MoMA PS1 we're talking about tonight. The exhibition, organized by Peter Ely, chief curator at PS1, presents two dozen of her medium-sized canvases in the museum's first floor project space. Most of the pictures are two or three feet high and are royal on linen or canvas stretched overboard. They range in date from 2010 to this year. The curator describes the works as a unique approach to the studio portrait. Quote, the artist has deployed a range of pictorial techniques to depict bodies under duress. The figures in her work are compressed by their environments, stretched and twisted across armatures, and often overwhelmed by their surroundings. Some are irradiated by industrial light, sutured into uncomfortable hybrids and hollowed out. Born in Canada in 1983, Braunig studied at the Cooper Union and Yale and currently lives and works in Portland, Maine. Whenever, whenever anyone, and that includes myself, quotes a press release, there's always the danger of slipping into a long debate about the horrors of press release writing. Um, but the press release actually is the close to the, uh, is, is also the curatorial introductory statement. Um, which I read after seeing the show. I, I saw the show and then read the blurb um, and thought, well, you know, that's okay. That's a reading, but it really is a reading. Um, and I had read and enjoyed these paintings uh, at a different level, uh, which had nothing to do with a sutured flesh or um, compressed, uh, hollowed out uh, shells and blah, blah, blah. Um, it, it almost seems as if uh, one only is in, one's only gains one's admission to a museum if one is uh, 
dealing with uh, the, the horrors and privations of modern alienated life. Mm. Um, and <laughs> that, but in fact, if one were just having fun with color and shape and form and with uh, a, a playful misreading of early modernism um, uh, and there was no alienation to be uh, had for love or money, you probably wouldn't be showing at PS1. Um, but I don't know. I, I kind of I liked this show before I read about it. Um, Martha, what about you? Love her work. Love it, love it. I didn't like this show as much as I thought I would. I really have loved the shows at Foxy. Um, it's just, you know, uh, you know, I mean, she's a painter. I didn't, when I heard the whole, the last bit about the Cooper and Yale, because people are always, oh, do you care where p people went to school? I really could care less, you know. But then when you sort of hear that, like, this is somebody who obviously, you know, showed something at a very young age, you know, to mm -hmm. get kind of picked up by these people. But she does have just, like, an amazing kind of vision. Um, I think one of the things, um, I'm still not done with Ai Weiwei. So <laughs> I think the thing I would say, one of the things is that people, you know, the kind of painting question, like what can you do in painting or is it just some sort of luxury object or whatever? Um, and that's in Ai Weiwei, sort of what we're saying, well, I'll do anything but painting unless it's a Lego or something like that. Whereas her, it's just that, um, you know, the sort of enduring nature of images and pictures and that like the internet changes your brain, Google changes your brain and, you know, layering or satellite images or whatever. When you see those images, you know they could only be made right now because even though it's a painting, so it's the oldest form in the world, you you have this kind of like, you have strange things going on that look like um, high definition, that look like, um, you know, 3D and all kinds of different things. And so it's a really weird world that it goes into. And we'll talk about it probably with the other painter, forgetting his name right now. Daniel Horowitz. Daniel yes. Horowitz. Um, because both of them, I read this, the press releases afterwards as well, and they both mentioned surrealism. And you're like, oh, yeah, sure, surrealism. I mean, that's a rather large catch-all. But hers does have a kind of surrealism that you could see someone like Takiriko or something, but it's the kind of like 7.0 version, you know, after you've had all this done to your brain and your eyes. So yeah, it's a kind I of mean, technologized uh, art, art historically vision. speaking, it's, it's surrealism plus op art and pop art and so on and so forth. But, um, but, but nonetheless, there are very strong resonances, perhaps. Uh, 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 Ryan, wouldn't you agree that, that one, one's got... Um, a painting that you come to and you say, oh, there's a bit of Picabia in that one, and then another painting, and oh, you can't do that hair without Leger, and um, that's a fun uh, redo of uh, uh, Victor Vazarelli, who's not a surrealist, it's true. But um, uh, did you find that this felt like painting about painting, or did you feel that there was a, um, uh, a fresh, again, this could be a false dichotomy, did you feel there was a fresh voice in there? Yeah, false dichotomy are my two favorite words. Yes. Um, I think that this, these paintings are incredibly smart. I think they're incredibly well rendered. Um, they do things with lighting that I've never seen before. There's something really creepy about them. Um, and I agree that they could only be made today. Um, there's something very contemporary about them. Um, at the same time, I don't think that 
this is like a conversation conversation that I'm kind of in. Like they're about these very minute decisions about the gesture and how paint is applied and color. Um, and I'm like not a painter and I'm not really like in that uh, world where these decisions are made. Um, so it didn't like grab me on a personal level, which is not to say that they're not great works and that you shouldn't see them. Um, but as a critic, I think I should be honest about where I'm coming from and it's just not um, a thing I'm into. Are you saying you wouldn't write about them, you mean? Or? Yeah, no, I wouldn't write about them because I feel like, um, for two reasons, I think I wouldn't do them justice um, because I think there are people who like really study the history of modernism and like the gesture and like what a painting is. And I don't like do those things. Um, but it'd be great to yeah. have a fresh voice because the problem is with painting in particular is that it, it can enter into a kind of ghetto of specialism and it becomes a, a craft activity. Uh, whereas in fact, painting for so long had, had been the, the first among equals and the kind of privileged medium that really spoke to the condition of art. And so I, while on the one hand I'd say it no longer deserves that particular status because we're more of a democracy of mediums, on the other hand, to, fall from, to go from there right down to the bottom of the heap and be like pottery would be a bit of a shame. I mean, nothing against pottery, but um, surely, surely, uh, surely somebody who's really interested in art and decisions about art could then apply those equally to felled tree trunks from South China or <laughs> paintings, uh, PS1. No? But uh, that's, that's you. Yeah, I just think it would be like yeah. needlessly critical because ah. um, I'm just recognizing that like there's this conversation happening here and I'm over here. And I'm interested in things like history and politics and social movements and the ways that we live through history. And you, you can make an argument that these paintings are about those things, but mm -hmm. they're about how you live in art history to me. Right. So I think Ryan is, is identifying the the aesthetic problem you know this is too aesthetic this is this by by uh, really concerning itself with its own medium possibilities and its own history and playfully bouncing those ideas around thereby kind of cuts itself off from the bigger story that an artist for instance like Ai Weiwei might be able to address do, do you buy that line or do you have a, a, a critique of that line well <coughs> I suppose the short answer is yes, I do. I think that Ryan is um, is simply just saying that there is a there are conversations that are happening around him that he um, is not uh, he is not part of and he's not that familiar with. And I can I and particularly where painting is com comes from, I get that because I I went to graduate school at UC Irvine and I have friends. Uh, from that time of my life who are painters. And the conversation that I have with them around painting is very different from the kind of conversations I have with anybody else. That said, I can appreciate the show, and I, and I did, except that for me there's a dangling thread, and it has to do with a conversation I had with a friend, uh, an artist, uh, uh, Todd Gray, who talked about his own uh, last series of um, photograph collages and he said something along the lines of yeah what they're all doing now well not all of them but what what is happening a lot now 
is people are using the language of surrealism to to uh, uh, give their works buoyancy in life. Right. And uh, it's, it is understood that surrealism is a large umbrella term. But walking through this show, I did see De Chirico, and I did see Magritte, and I did see, um, uh, well, I didn't necessarily see Legere, but it felt to me... And Ray is there, definitely in the mix, isn't he? It, it, yes. felt to me, it felt to me a bit, uh, well, there were, in terms of composition, I could see... It reminded me a, a lot, uh, many of the canvases reminded me of Magritte. And it, and it made me think, oh, that that's rather formulaic. And so it took the shine off the show a bit for me. And I, and I do, I can appreciate that she's doing rather lovely and, and um, surprising things with paint. Um, particularly, there's a canvas that has a kind of like quilted cushion that seems to be oh being yeah. pushed um, uh, uh, from either side um, by these tools and something leather leatherette, luxury leatherette. Mm-hmm. That yeah. might be it. I mean, it's, it's a gorgeous, it's a gorgeous painting, but it's not the kind of painting that makes me, that makes me. What What did I say the other day? I, I said something about painting. It doesn't. It no, yeah, no, that's not true. It does reward my looking. It does. I just don't know if it rewards it enough. Okay. That that painting in particular it seemed to me that one of the strongest in the show as, as well. I mean, it, it felt like fishnet um, over flesh and really almost digging into it like uh, the wrapping on on a piece of raw meat. It's uh, uh, I've told my panelists they're not allowed to point to the screen. That's against the rules. But I'm waiting for and hoping that it comes. I know it'll come <laughs> up in a moment because <laughs> it's one of the four images that are are, are in the silent display behind me. Precisely. But it's one where you've got a bright yellow and you've got this like. Uh, digging almost sadistically into that flesh, um, uh, a fishnet. Um, well, but that, that seemed to me, um, it seems to me that we got some, uh, uh, an interesting problem here to deal with, and that's the, the, the revisiting of, an oh, there you go. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Very yeah, sexy. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's um, um, surrealism. Uh, it's, it's, the great liberating movement of the 20th century, and then suddenly it's the most cheesy moment in 20th century painting, isn't it? And, and but th- that's they they must have known that that's what they were going to that was going to be their fate. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, beauty will be convulsive, or it will not be at all, or well, actually, it could just be ironic. So it, it turns out, you know, the Breton's big statements didn't really carry across that um, surrealism. But surrealism is is getting a moment, isn't it? There's a uh, it's 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 okay now to look again at and be a bit like a surrealist. That doesn't necessarily mean one is committed to the surrealist revolution as such, uh, or any of the politics, or hopefully none of the sexual politics of the uh, uh, version one surrealists. But um, quirkiness, juxtaposition, mm. um, uh, aberrant um, uh, sexual oddity, uh, desire. Um, uh, kinkiness, they're all certainly uh, back in spades. So, um, Martha, it, it, does, does Braunig feel like uh, part of a big trend or is she doing something very distinctive? 
Both, I guess. Um, I would say on to your uh, list of what's surrealist, a lot of it has to do with space. And so in the same way, you had a kind of dream space. And so you had someone like Dali or Yves Tanguy, you know, painting what for them was sort of envisioned as a sort of, you know, dreamscape or a dream space. You have the newer version of that, as I've already said, that we have multiple forms of dream spaces, you know, whether it's sitting in front of a screen that is a screensaver or something like that. Um, the kind of recycling that you're talking about is is um, sort of rampant throughout art so that people say, oh, well, the young kids, they're recycling this, they're recycling that, this, that, and the other. And I think it's a kind of like, you know, we've already, you know, 30, 40 years ago, you had appropriation. And so I don't, I don't really have a problem with that because you've got so much thrown back at you through culture or if you go to museums or if you're on the internet. Um, that um, the idea of sort of like originality, that's what postmodernism was critiquing. So mm. I'm not really looking for like the most original vision. In some ways, I am interested in these kind of, you know, uh, overused word, but kind of mashups of different, um, you know, and I don't want to say styles, but it's really sort of like modalities of, th you know, how you think about all these different things. And painting boils it down. And the Ai Weiwei thing, I think what you leave is like, okay, you, you threw all this at me. What am I supposed to do? The lesson I get from painting is that it is on this individual basis and that it is, you know, about sort of like slow, you know, you hear about slow food, it's slow, and people talk about this a lot with painting. It takes a long time to make one of those paintings, and hopefully it's demanding more of your attention and, you know, thoughtful looking instead of just this, like, we put together 2,000 things, it, it, it boggles the mind, and so you have that kind of, like, contemporary sublime of being overwhelmed and helpless and terrorized and whatever. I think that this does in some way offer a kind of vision and solution in terms of, you know, looking at something. I The one thing I would say too, I just, I've studied painting, you know, since I was 16 is when I took my first art history class and I made art the whole time I was, I was growing up. It's really scary to write about painting. Whenever I ag agree to do it, I'm just like, <laughs> You know, because, yeah, peop the painters talk about painting all day long, you know, and I just have to sort of, like, let it go in terms of the fact that you are going to get things wrong, and I always hear about it from other writers or from me, what is, you know, wrong. Like, we, do, we don't work from photographs, or we do work, they're just, there's so many moving parts, mm. and it is still a really specialized field, but the fact is video is a specialized field, a field specialized, so is film, exactly. all they of They all them, are, you know? they all can be, and uh, some of those mediums are embraced for their universality and their ease of access, and others are embraced precisely because of the specialism that they 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 afford. I, I always say with painting that um, I, mean I don't paint, but that I'm, I'd say nine out of ten things that I write about is painting. But yep. um, let let's be clear: there's a distinction between being a, a, a food writer and being a restaurant critic. And uh, the restaurant critic doesn't have to know how to bake a pie to know what it tastes like. Yeah. So. Um, if you've got anything to say about painting, don't be intimidated. Just say it. Well, That's and as a critic, you're a generalist, you know. Yeah. You're hanging yourself out to dry. There's nothing you can do, you know. It seems and to me so it is the gold standard of, of mediums to write about. 
yeah, because of its history. You know, but there's always some new medium, you know, too. And so you're like, oh, great. Now I got to learn about that. Oh. Yeah. And, <laughs> and I do but think, I do think, I mean, there's a way in which that, that sense of it being a gold medium is, is, is particularly generational. Like there's a yeah. way in which, you know, someone like Ryan K Tree Carton, like, uh, you know, video installation t type of work seems to me like the new lingua franca. Uh, and so th there's a way in which... Uh, you think so, really? I mean, to me, that kind of installation is always going to be a byproduct of the 1960s counterculture. Mm. However young and enthusiastic uh, a new practitioner of it's going to be, the points of reference are all always going to be uh, uh, back to... Uh, uh, Alan Capro and Judy Pfaff, etc. Um, and that's a very recent vintage. So, whereas painting, you can go back to Lascaux. Can I do a quick survey? When, when someone says art, who here thinks of painting first? I'm just curious. It's like two thirds mm. of the audience. That's mm. what we needed. You've, mm. you've nailed it. Excellent. We're done. That's actually a <laughs> <laughs> Well, we're not necessarily done, but we're certainly at the point where we want to bring in. Our, our audience to do more than put their hands up in the air. So now, now is in fact a moment where we've got two shows and it occurs to me our hosts may have um, left me to it, which means um, we could do all kinds of very wicked things, but one of the things I do need to do is get a microphone. Um, so, um, Greg, ah, Noah, thank you. So this is the moment where we take advantage of modern technology and don't have to stay in our seats and we can wander around and get some comments. Now let's, uh, we've got Sasha Braunick to talk about and, and also Ai Weiwei. Let's start, let's maybe start with Braunick as she's current in the mind. We're talking here about painting as the gold standard. Um, anybody like to uh, offer a contribution on uh, a comment or a question on, on Sasha Braunick uh, or the, just the general question that we've, uh, that seems to have emerged in the course of this discussion? Um, painting, is it the gold standard? Uh, surrealism, uh, is it, uh, is it uh, cheesy or an endless resource of uh, nourishment? Um, but maybe cheese is nourishing as well. But there you are. Um, anyone on Bronick? David, down here. Yes, fantastic. Uh, cool. Let me... Oh. Well, my comment is more about the notion of surrealism being cheesy or passe or timeless. I mean, surrealism is something that's part of all of our lives every day, consciously and unconsciously, you know, in how we dream and how we associate people with emotions or memories. It's disjuncted, it's juxtaposed. And I just, um, I don't think of it as this sort of genre that lives in, it in a little compartment. I think it permeates the way a lot of artists uh, experience their lives and, 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 and sort of it comes through their imagery. So I'm perfectly comfortable with seeing surrealism continue to emerge. Great. Yeah, no one says it ends. Yes. Oh, oh no, no, I can do it. Thank you. Yeah, really. I, I need the exercise. Thanks. Um, some more on Braunig, yes? Anyone else got something on surrealism, Braunig, painting? Three big subjects. Great. I just wanted to speak to the idea of painting being a gold standard of some kind because um, as somebody who looks at painting a lot, I think that when you look at that medium over and over again, you can see the subtleties between artists and uh, 
I would say that Laura Owens is kind of the gold standard for me, and I, I'm constantly surprised when I see her work. She's always finding some new area to delve into, and a lot of times it's digital, and oftentimes her scale is surprising to me, or just the source material is very surprising to me. And, and I say that like as compared to any other artist working, I think that as a painter, her work is as exciting as anyone working in any other medium. But with um, Sasha's work, it's interesting to see that she's trying to mine also the, the digital world because that's an area that um, is, is rife with possibilities for painters who don't have a lot of areas to go into. I mean, you know, a lot has been done and this is new. And so I can see how she's sort of in dialogue maybe with somebody like Laura Owens. And I just wanted to mention that. <laughs> cool. Okay. Thank you. I don't, I don't need a you do, you do, because we're recording it. And also, one, one always feels that if you can hear yourself, everyone else can. But um, uh, that's the echo chamber of modernity. Oh, there you are. Um, I, I really, I really appreciate painting still, um, just because I still, f I feel like painting is this language that's still confined to a canvas. Whereas, I mean, I recently saw the Pipilotti wrist exhibition, mm -hmm. and it was Instagrammable, as we all love to say now, the youth. Um, but it's a lot thrown at you, and you don't have to do much to appreciate it. You can just like be in it, and you're loving it. But um, painting, you have to like commit and then attempt to listen to what the artist is like relaying. You know, you have to you have to give it the most you can give. I, sort I of. I mean, they say that in like the Met and some of those larger museums, that people spend three seconds in front of a painting. Right. Like, what's that's up with not that? so great. That bums, that bums so, me out. Yeah, right. it, but it's, I didn't come up with that statistic. I think it's 2.4 seconds, but... Uh, <laughs> the David Cohen metric. No, no, I think that's what it was. <laughs> yeah, but I, 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 I question yeah, I the, the, the validity of the statistic, because you, you just take the number of paintings that are in the Met, and then you divide it. So obviously, the Frick is going to have a better rating than the Met. <laughs> <laughs> I just... It's nice to see some of my fellow hyperallergic writers on the stage. I just want to vent that I'm really over fluorescent surrealism and like having walked through like a lot of the Bushwick open studios and the Red Hook open studios and when you walk the turf in Brooklyn you just see a lot of young painters who basically take Yves Tanguy or take some Magritte or take Paul Delvaux and like put it on bright colors and like that sort of mashup thing I don't know if you guys see that too but it does sometimes get a bit like okay again and I just want to just give you a little bit of pushback, David, because I mean, I love painting and I'm actually one of the crazy people who goes to the Met Museum and looks at one painting for an hour with the observant eye people. But, you know, if you go to the new museum, the new museum is packed and it's that really interesting video art and there's some really new sort of exciting directions opening up. So I don't know. I mean, I guess my main comment question for the panel is color because I feel that, and again, we're getting to Paragone discourse comparing the different you know, different mediums and what they all offer, but there's a relationship with color with painting. Hmm. You know, because even when you have video art, it's a chronology, so it's, it's about some type of sequence. But when you have a frozen image and it's just about color, I think there's something very special there. Right. Thank you very much. Tell us your name as you're a writer on Hyperlogic. I'm Daniel. All right, we'll look for Daniel. Okay, great. <laughs> um, 
The Piplati wrist is incredibly painterly, and I was going to say the same thing about Ryan Treycarton. And I mean, I'm not just saying, oh, there's painterly. When you're putting color all over your body, you know, it's... I, w I would agree with know. that, and that's why I think it's the gold standard, because one doesn't take one's what one learns from video back to painting as, as easily and as readily and, and as meaningfully as one takes from painting back to video. So that's, that there's, if there's more traffic in one direction, that tells me that that's the center of town. <laughs> okay, um, Ai Weiwei. Um, big subjects again, the role of the artist in society today. Um, anyone got burning to say something that they, they feel that the panel missed on Ai Weiwei? I, uh, any, any, any champion of Ai Weiwei uh, would be welcome um, at this stage, and then we, then we can... Thank you, sir. I'm not really a, a champion necessarily, and I didn't see the show, but my overwhelming reaction to the laundromat um, installation just from the images is, what is he, like, don't people need these clothing? Don't, I mean, what's it doing in a gallery when there are 16, 65 million people who could be wearing it? I don't know if that's relevant to the art or anything else, but that was just my reaction to seeing those images. Well, uh, hopefully if, if um, Jeffrey Deitch sells it, then a percentage, a royalty perhaps, could go to the 65 million refugees. Uh, <laughs> I had a uh, sort of a similar take on the Ai Weiwei thing and was wondering, well, it's kind of like walking into the Salvation Army. <laughs> uh, you know, they wash the clothes and fold them nicely. <laughs> and, and apparently Ai Weiwei was not in any sort of meditative washing the clothes himself. Um, mm. But I wanted to make an, another uh, observation just about the, the aims of painting and say in contrast to Ai Weiwei. Uh, and that we, to me Ai Weiwei is not an artist, he's a designer. Um, and that uh, the design has something to do with a known end effect, mm -hmm. desired projection, where I think in painting is a very discovery kind of process, and, and I think it's, uh, mm -hmm. but we obviously distinguish it from design quite a bit. Right, the presentational versus the exploratory. Excellent. Oh, that's just a good row, isn't it? This is, this is, there's an alternative panel here, ladies and gentlemen. Um, in, I guess, in defense of um, Iowa Way's work, especially um, in relationship to the refugee crisis, um, and I did not see the laundromat show, but I have followed him for a long time on Instagram, and before he had his passport back, you know, there's a variety of images. A lot of them were, you know, faces of people that, portraits and people that he was working with and encountered. There were also a lot of cats. and. Then he started dealing with the refugees, and there was this flood of images. Some of them were still, some of them were um, video. And they were kind of unrelenting, and it was before Instagram became non-chronological. So they really just, you know, they were just coming out, coming out, coming out. And at first, um, it was very eye-opening for me. And then it also really had a, an effect, an emotional effect on me, much more than watching the news did. I mean, I really felt I was sharing and being exposed to, you know, an incredible involvement um, with this horrible humanitarian crisis. So I, you know, I felt a power 
of you know seeing his work brought out into the world through through his images and you know I, I see it resonating the same thing resonating with with the clothing having not experienced it I don't know if it would hit me the same way but there is I've experienced a lot of power from the bigness of the way he approaches the subject thank you very much that's fantastic yeah keep it it has to be like dominoes yeah you have to be able to touch the person who last spoke to speak next um I guess this is a, a comment for the, um, the kind of art that we see that has to do with the subject matter of politics and social, um, social stories that we see on the news. I think it's very important for um, activism. I think that activism has taken a turn where people pay more attention to these issues in, in this format. And so I think it's a revolution for activists. What that says about how we receive, um, or receive this information in the context of art galleries or as an art form is, I think, something different. And maybe that's something that you could talk about. Yeah, we will convene a panel and do so. Excellent. Thank you very much, uh, well, audience. You know, the and thing is, no, Martha, thank you. Thank um, you very much. Let me just say, with Ai Weiwei, he just had the thing with Tanya Bruguera. Where was the panel? You know. Where was Brooklyn it? Brooklyn Museum. Yeah, that's yeah. what I thought. I didn't see it because I guess they got into it around a certain amount of things. But that's, you know, that's another form. I mean, there's your other activist form and social practice and whatever. So, I mean, there's an incredibly robust field of art that's activist and taking other forms. So it's not that I personally have anything against activist art. I just, there's certain articulations of it that are more effective yeah. than others. Yeah, I, I think, think also, oh. yeah, sorry. If I could just comment on that really quickly, um, and really all four of those comments, thank you. Um, when we talk about art and activism, I think there's kind of this myth that these have been separate categories and have always been separate categories and only now are they starting to come together. I think when you actually look at the history of how um, societies emerge and how societies change, that's never really been true. Um, and I do think there is always an interesting question of the forms activism takes and there's an interesting question of the politics that art takes. Um, so this is an ongoing thing. And I think that uh, it's taking new forms in this contemporary moment. Um, but I just want us to break this idea that those have ever been separate categories. Okay, I think we could definitely have a, a panel that's not a review panel that just grapples with some of the underlying issues. But I guess that's what most panels do. So our, our panel actually is uh, show focused. So let's <laughs> now move uh, move around a little bit. We've, we've got shows in Queens and Brooklyn to deal with in part two. Um, let's have our next and last video. The last two shows we're talking about this evening could be grouped under the rubric Civilization and its Discontents. We're considering the mid-career survey of British artist Mark Leckie, titled for Manchester punk band The Falls song Containers and Their Drivers at PS1, and a show by American Daniel Horowitz at the Brooklyn Townhouse Gallery, Tilu Fine Art, with a Freudian title, Totem and Taboo. Leckie's installations include works by other artists, or simulacra of them, while Horowitz's paintings are exhibited alongside a collection of African carvings. Mark Leckie, who won the Turner Prize in Britain in 2008, has recreated a number of installations from earlier in his career, as well as devising new installations to accommodate earlier videos. 
one of the best known of these is the 15 minute video collage Ferrucci Made Me Hardcore from 1999 which samples vintage VHS recordings of working class British dance scenes from 1970s Northern Soul through 1990s Acid House. Introductory installations include videos of public lectures delivered by the artist that fuse anthropology, cultural studies and technological history in an almost incantatory performance style. Listen to his words on the Minotaur, for example, whose darkened labyrinth lies at the heart of a succession of rooms that in turn allude perhaps to the containers of the exhibition's title. So the Minotaur is, is uh, the, the, the wife of Minos, I think. The wife of Minos in, in mythology uh, was attracted to a bull, this beautiful white bull that was, that was sent by the gods. And the wife was attracted to this bull. And so she asked um, Daedalus, like Daedalus and Icarus, um, who was known as the, uh, as the kind of great... He's like the father of engineering, Daedalus. He's, like the, he's, he's, he's kind of known as the great artificer. And she asked him to make her a bull costume, a cow costume, sorry, a cow costume so she could trick the bull into copulating with her. And the bull did. She was in this cow costume inside this machine. The bull comes and inseminates her, and she gave birth to the minotaur. And so the minotaur in myth is this... Is this uh, is this creation of kind of the human and the non-human. It's kind of, it's, it, it comes out of this kind of mechanical, unnatural process. Paintings by Daniel Horowitz in his second New York exhibition, Totem and Taboo, often use found fabric, printed fabric, as their support. In the words of the gallery's press release, the exhibition explores the ambiguity of the post-colonial identity in the Western world, while also paying homage to the influence of tribal art on modernism and contemplating the existential crisis ushered by the onset of the Anthropocene. Our video was shot during a salon organised in conjunction with the exhibition that brought together psychoanalyst Jameson Webster and philosopher Chiara Bottici. Well, let's actually stay in Brooklyn and think about Jonathan Horowitz's uh, exhibition Daniel first. Horowitz. Daniel Horowitz's exhibition first. Thank you, Ryan. Um, uh, Seth, um, that's a, it's a brave. Uh, it's it's a, a brave. Angels rush in, perhaps, or it's a brave uh, subject to take on in a in a painting show. The the whole post-colonial relationship uh, of um, modernism to um, the, the, the tribal, um, uh, totems and taboos. Um, were you excited and liberated by this show or left in some doubts or, left or, or, or thrown into panic? <laughs> what, what was your response? <laughs> no, not quite panic. Um, although there is a way in which Horowitz's um, use of the surreal brings to mind um, part of an earlier conversation that we had around the use of surrealism in younger artists. Um, but, you know, actually, I'm w I want to put that aside. 
I did struggle with this show. Um, I think I struggled with it because I got the, the sense that his ambitions are quite outsized and that the work doesn't quite meet them. Um, I do think that if you are going to set up, and again, you know, it's not necessarily fair to sort of tether the, the meaning of the show or my sense of what the meaning of the show is to the press release. But given what you read in the video and, and uh, what the press, which is essentially what the press release indicates, that he's taking on this sort of um, political, social, cultural inheritance of colonialism and trying to make some sense of it by way of creating a dialogue with these um, sort of um, indigenous objects, it feels like in certain moments it kind of works. There's an image, there's a particular image of a kind of, um, I guess I, I want to say it's a totem figure, but I, I don't feel that I'm, I necessarily know what I'm talking about. Um, this is kind of a human figure. Um, I want to say black, um, looks like it's carved out of um, one stone. And, and what's pouring out of it, or what's pouring onto it, is this sort of melted unconscious. Um, and there in that moment it felt like, I felt like, right, so this thing, this thing, these things aren't actually ever really in dialogue. One seems to be throwing itself on the other, or one seems to be vomiting up the other, but they're not, not really. They're juxtaposed. They're just put together by this woeful hand, but they don't necessarily make sense to each other. So I did come out of that show feeling mm, ambitious. Yes. I'm not sure that you, your work has arrived at a place that, that makes sense to me yet. Right, right. But then again, it might be better to have that ambition and work towards it than, than start with too small an ambition. But, uh, but uh, that's, that's an existential decision for any artist to, to make. Um, um, Ryan, I, I found there, was, there, was, there were things to admire in this show. Um, I, I found it very liberating to be in uh, a beautiful domestic space where one could see work um, I, I, rather than the ubiquitous white cube or grungy former school that, that we're used to for um, so much contemporary art. Um, and um, it, it also seemed to me that um, um, while the actual politics of what he's doing or the ideology of what he's doing is possibly beyond my, my uh, powers to, to decide or adjudicate upon, um, uh, I, I found actually the, the uh, explorations of the raw and the cooked uh, in his work uh, the the use of found fabrics upon which to paint, um, the kind of um, vestiges of of art history in in his uh, ghostly kind of figures, um, it did provoke good questions, um, although certainly rather familiar ones from uh, postmodern painting of the 80s onwards, um, and it just seemed to me actually his handling of paint was um, uh, had a certain lushness to it that. Um, 
was was uh, uh, seemed like a good starting point for something. Um, what did you feel about the juxtaposition of of, of objects uh, from other cultures and and paintings um, that uh, dealing with th that subject? I think we're in a moment where we all have to be extremely conscious and aware of when we use objects from another culture and why. And I guess I'm really concerned with any trend or any tendency to use African sculpture as a footnote or inspiration to the kinds of theories of European people, white people in Europe. And to me, this exhibition said it was about a post-colonial moment and about kind of critiquing the history of appropriation. Um, but I didn't really see the critique. Um, and I'm trying to look for it. And I know that the gallerist and Daniel didn't intend any harm by what they're doing. I'm sure their intentions are good. Um, but I would really ask you to consider why you're doing this. Why do you have um, sacred sculptural objects in this domestic setting? And why are they being used to illustrate uh, Freudian ideas? Um, and why is your work about those ideas and not actually about the sculpture? As Seth pointed out, why isn't there a linkage? Why is one idea just kind of glommed onto, without consent, this entire cultural history of these sacred objects? Um, you know, I think we're in a moment where we have to be conscious of these things because as we've seen from the election, if we're not aware of how our politics play out, they have very damaging repercussions. Right. Um, so that is where I come out on this. So the post-colonial could actually be neo-colonial? Uh, post-colonial, to be clear, post-colonial is an ideal. Post-colonial is a theory of where we need to get to. We are still very much in a colonial moment. Uh, we just talked about how there are 65 million refugees um, trying to find a home in Europe in this moment. Um, so post-colonial is a great thing to move towards. It's a great thing to study. Um, we need to get there. Yeah, yeah. I concur. Uh, so, so Martha, yeah, the, the potential insensitivity of, of the use of um, uh, indigenous artifacts, um, did that bother you, or do you feel we can get over it and move on to something else? No. I mean, um, I was kind of more offended um, by how pretentious the show was. I was just like, bleh. You know, because it was like everything, you know, Freud, surrealism, uh, primitivism, and the Anthropocene. And I was like, oh, oh, okay. You know, it was really like, you know, okay. And I, I agree with you about the... Um, press release it was like and let's add yeah and that too you know um and that again you can't you know you gotta you do have to be really careful you know not to use the press release against the show which i am mm -hmm. guilty of having done many 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 times because we're writers right so mm -hmm. you get handed a piece of writing and you're just like oh god who wrote this you know but um you know, I mean, there is a critique of um, colonialism, of, of um, you know, using ethnographic objects in surrealism. And he is, like, not 100% wrong with that, you know? I mean, you have the Andre Breton people, and then you have um, the Roger 
Taiwan, you know, the whole documents crowd, they were saying that Thai crowd, yes. exactly. So there is a way in which there's a, you know, there's an art history about this. This is what October, the journal, you know, this is the good part of October is that they really covered that and said, look, there were certain people who were doing this later on, the people who are against the Algerian war in France and whatever. So that's all fine and good. The thing is that um, it's a little ambitious what he's trying to do. And um, what's really happening is it looks like David Sally and, you know, Leipzig school painting, you know. Maybe and a little trans avant-garde as yeah, well. Yeah, and mm-hmm. it's not, it's, there's some really pretty good paintings in there and some pretty good moments in it. It's just that, again, trying to kind of graft on this, you know, gigantic, you know, like, ugh, bag of stuff. Um, I had the unfortunate thing that I showed up on Saturday during the salon and I was like, oh my God, I'm going to kill myself. But because it was really, you know, I mean, we're in the art world. We, We can walk into a pretentious conversation you know, five minutes from now and an hour from now. And so for me, I have a a little bit of a low tolerance around it because I was kind of like the performance aspect, the panels that, you know, the salon, all of that, I, I, it, it starts to feel like something else rather than exactly what you're talking about, whether it has, whether it's sort of vital or whether it's just kind of, um, an accessory in a sense. And so sort of hearing the salon and trying to look at the work, um, I don't know, that's, you know, maybe that's just somebody who's jaded, but. I think <laughs> maybe uh, in fairness, um, possibly that's the case because I've, I didn't find the panel, uh, I didn't find the salon pretentious. I, uh, there was a psychoanalyst and a philosopher speaking. They were both rather bright and interesting people. They they did bring appreciation to the work and not, not much critique to the post or neo-colonial problematic. But actually, um, again, this is, I'm conscious of time, we could uh, be here for many hours talking about the colonial and the post-colonial. But actually, you know, the thing about African uh, tribal uh, and and ritual artifacts um, is that they they now have a long history uh, of being objects with a a different currency uh, within um, global or Western um, uh, art culture, and and that um, objects that um, have exhausted the intended functions of their makers um, have a can have a secondary and distinct um, function uh, and many functions uh, within other cultures. So these artifacts are are prized and collected. Um, many of them are made in post-colonial or current times um, uh, for touristic rather than for ritual purposes. And there is a, a value assigned to African carving for its uh, formal qualities that's rather like the way in which, in fact, almost any object made before the 18th century that you see in a museum like the Met or the Louvre uh, originally had a a sacred um, or a court or a function or some function other than to be uh, an object to be looked at on a white wall with top light. So the fact that we uh, are able to look at um, uh, medieval altarpieces without burning incense and saying prayers is, is, is already doing to those objects a similar violence, if it is a violence, to, to what we do with 
uh, traded um, tribal artifacts. So I think that there's a more complex and nuanced history and also a, a back and forth um, between cultures that, that it sometimes in, a, in our rush for, um, uh, I, I hesitate to use the word now, it's been used so horribly and often by someone else, but a certain in our rush to a certain sort of political correctness that maybe uh, we're throwing out some baby with the bathwater. Well, it depends who you talk to. I mean, Romeo Bearden thought Picasso was great because he used African Precisely. art yeah. and saw the value in it, you know, and sort of spotlighted all the things that were great about it. So, it, you know, you know, and then 10 years from now, you might get a different sort of perspective. Right. Everything so goes it's always, it is a super complicated. I mean, it's even weird when you go to the Met when I used to do the New Yorker blurbs, you know, I just did, uh, well, whatever, I did like 1,800 of those. One time I wrote about African, a show of African works, and they were all instruments. And what was bothering me is that I was sitting here looking at a museum at like 50 instruments that were silent, you know? So, right. and there was no, you know, you can even hear it. So you were just sort of like, well, that's pretty, but what is it? What, what does it, it sound, sound like? like? Yes. So it's it's all over the map, that kind yes. of stuff. I would say, yeah, no one on this panel, I would think, would say that cultural exchange is a bad thing. Um, mm. I think would that say, is... Would say what? Would say that cultural exchange mm -hmm. is a bad thing. Right. Um, cultural exchange is the driving force of so much of art history, uh, the crossing of cultures. I think what we need to be very aware of is the terms of those exchanges. And in particular, with... This history we're talking about, we're talking about a long and violent history of European colonialism in Africa. And so if we're not really conscious of that history and of those terms, then what are we doing? I think we're always conscious of it, though. I mean, when we walk in, we, as in the people on this panel, are conscious of it, you know. Do you feel like he's not conscious of it, the artist, that you feel like it was sort of... I mean, if we are all conscious of it, we can give the benefit of doubt to Daniel Horowitz for also being conscious of it. No. Yeah, I guess I'm trying to figure out what he is trying to say with those objects. Well, that's the thing. I looked up Totem and Taboo because um, uh, <laughs> I felt like I should. Um, and it's this Freudian text written, I should say, rather, it's a text written by Freud, 1913. Um, that does this kind of social psychology, social anthropology thing, which at this stage in our historical understanding, we appreciate as him having gotten it quite wrong. Mm -hmm. But what he's doing, I suppose, is he's, well, he's doing a couple of things. But one of the things he's doing is he's trying to look at how totems or or are, are, are considered or understood within quote-unquote primitive cultures and what that might have to do with these underlying attitudes, these underlying practices like concerning marriage. Um, so there's something there maybe that Horowitz is trying to get at that, that there's a way in which you can easily misread the totem, right, the, the, the object in the way that uh, 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 Freud did, um, but there, and, and I thought about this, and I thought, well, yes, but that 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 those seems like straws that are slipping through my fingers when I try to grasp them, right? Like again, I'm, I, I end up in a place where I feel ultimately the show was really ambitious, but I just don't know if you quite 
got a hold of all this rather heavy and awkward material. Mm-hmm. Mm. I think he was less tone deaf to the fact that Freud is offensive, you know? Yes. <laughs> I mean, it's <laughs> like, okay, you know, so I don't know. And, of course, the early formalist critics like Roger Fry would, would um, argue, uh, despite his pacifism and his being as... Um, liberal as one could be in his own day, um, his, his basic notion that the African carver um, is misreading his own carving. Right. Uh, that, that in fact, that, that the, the, the plays with volume and shape are right. actually more profound than they realize and give them a, give them a camera and they'll immediately abandon their right. uh, traditional carving in favor of a camera. I mean, that's, um, th- which is itself a, a completely colonialist notion of the... Uh, the, the wealth of nations. Let's move, as we must, to our to our final show. Um, Mark Leckie at uh, PS One. Um, so here we have somebody who seems to be uh, super conscious of the the politics and the iconography and the iconology of almost anything he touches or that touches his life as a Liverpudlian following the dance scene or an art school uh, theorist um, or um, as an international art celebrity. Um, uh, watching those uh, early lectures, I found to me, uh, to be, I mean, the most um, quite riveting. I, I, I almost felt like I was looking at um, a fifth Beatle uh, giving a Joseph Boyce imitation that was uh, a sort of um, a, a, a both a shaman and um, uh, uh, a sort of genius and also um, a, a genius who's being a bit of a fraud and a fraud who's being a bit of a genius. You know, you'd never quite... You, it's not either or. There's, there's, there's genius and fraudulence in, in, in this whole gathering of a vast array of images and, and making sense of it. How did you make sense of it? Ryan. Yeah, I think what really struck me about the retrospective is how many different media he worked in and how comfortably he worked in them. Um, I really think Mark Leckie, if we're being generous, is kind of like um, a modern da Vinci. He's a, the artist as inventor. He, like, he loves to think about weird scans of uh, Felix the Cat from like the early 20th century. He loves to play with different forms. Um, he works with refrigerators. He works with speakers. He works with inflatable balloons photographs um so i just got the sense of like a really curious uh boyish personality who's kind of endlessly mining his own life and the kind of cultural world around him for inspiration um and i think as someone who like grew up with the internet it's a very familiar feeling because i think um you know i'm just very aware of how much pop culture has shaped me for good and bad um and how much my obsessions were really sparked by a lot of the things I watched early on in my life, uh, in the same way that Mark Leckie is obsessed with, like, Felix the Cat. Mm. Yeah. Do you, do you feel that um, uh, pop culture um, overwhelms Leckie, or that Leckie finds the, 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 the meaning within it, or a meaning within it? Um. <laughs> told you guys he was gonna you always have the question because I'm thinking in my mind what I'm gonna say I'm like wait a minute I'm gonna say what I want 
to say, or what's your question again? The question pop is, culture. The question is, Martha, pop I'm going to ramble a bit and ask <laughs> an irrelevant question that I want you to completely ignore. I told him Basically, because I've I done know, this before. Basically, I want to know what's on the top of your brain right this minute. What's on the top of my brain? Um, I really like your description. I think he, the savant, sort of like, is he an idiot or not? And of course, <laughs> what he's really using, like, as a medium almost, is like his accent and yes, class and whatever. Right. I thought he was from Manchester rather than Liverpool. I thought that was... Oh. Does it matter? You know, I, um, I'm such a, <laughs> such a southern English snob that I don't even oh, know the difference. he's from Manchester. <laughs> and the Manchester part's important because I, of I'm not Joy sure Division, he, are you sh- et cetera. Sure? I, I know I'm that he likes like a Manchester band. I know the band is a Manchester I'm pretty certain because okay. of the whole Joy Division and, and whatnot, and it's very territorial, you know, in terms of... Manchester is very specific. I knew I needed um, to bring my phone with me. <laughs> <laughs> Here you can. Oh no, it okay. doesn't work. Okay. Um, but the thing is, um, I think he's strongest with video. You know, sort of bar none. It's uh, the objects. It was a little like a lot of rooms. I have that problem at PS One sometimes. You know, again. Um, what's his name? Um, Ryan Trey Carton, you know, it was like, Oh God, too many rooms, you know, (laughs) just edit it, keep Mm -hmm. it down, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. Um, so the, the, um, and in fact in teaching, I've, um, shown those videos, Mm. the long tail, I can't remember the full name of it, but those things are amazing, you know, in terms of thinking about painting form. Then he brings in the Fishley and Vice. Mm. He he really is kind of like and the technology you know, of uh, it's incredible. The rest in your computer is a little labyrinth of a motherboard, and that maps the labyrinth of um, Minos and the Minotaurum. Yeah, well, that's yeah. what I was laughing about because the surrealism. I'm like, wait a minute, Minotaur. This really is like you. This is the real thing. You've yeah. stacked mm. the deck here in terms of surrealism Mm -hmm. the thing is that and i do love i think you know he really did understand um uh the uk in the 90s the music the whole thing i would say if ai weiwei is struggling with being you know the bono of art the thing with this one that I just kept, and, and it's a little bit tiring, is the fact that, okay, so Mark Lucky's in his 50s. Is he still cool? That was, like, something that was, like, written about, talked about. And so that is the one problem with the sort of pop cultural thing is you, you kind of, like, have your moment. You know, somebody who's dealt with it very well is Dan Graham in terms of, like, Rock My Religion and things like that, of treating music as you know something with a history with their cultural form the social the politics the et cetera et cetera et cetera um and um i don't know that was sort of in the back of my mind because i kept sort of uh, the, and the british artists have this where they have to they can't just be the artists they also have to be cool you know <laughs> and so <laughs> it that cool factor Some of them do, the cool ones do i mean well the, the, the ybas do but uh, the older generation didn't really didn't obviously care about coolness much otherwise Pre- there wouldn't have been a need for Turner ybas cool. yeah. yes Turner was never cool yeah, exactly yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, i agree uh, yeah and also i find that when the artist when an artist ceases being cool that's when I feel it's safe to, s- to take them seriously. <laughs> um, that, that, uh, uh, so, I mean, it's, what could be more telling, uh, Seth, than, than, than that we have this show in a, a public school? I mean, it's, uh, this is, uh, he, he's, he's, he's always somewhere between didactis- uh, didacticism and delinquency. Mm. And, and so that they're, they're, they're both like very apropos to PS1. Did nice. you, which, which did you find? Uh, which was winning out for you, the didacticism or the delinquency? Delinquency, definitely. Um, if, if, if I'm going to just accept the premise of your 
the dichotomy. Um, um, unlike Ryan, I'm just gonna like, yeah, acquiesce. Um, <laughs> but here's the thing about the show, and this, this comes off of I think seeing Daniel Horowitz the day before. Is that correct? Oh. Wait, let me think about this. No, it was two days before because I saw you on Saturday and yes, I just yes. seen the show. And then I went to PS1 on Monday, and I was still thinking about Horowitz when I was walking through Lecky's work. And I thought about um, something that I'd read in conjunction with reading up on Totem and Taboo. And there's something like the quote from the, from the I think the text was something like, for it said that um, in the uh, omnipotence of thought, it, it still occur, omnipotence of thought occurs in the magical realm of art. Because he was critiquing the animism and how, basically, he, 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 according to Freud, um, animism resulted from this sort of over-evaluation of our own thoughts, right? right. Or, 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 or over-evaluation, sorry, of our own thoughts. So I thought about that in, in conjunction with Lecky, and it just felt to me like walking through that was him just spraying his id all over PS1, right. like it was his favorite hydrant, like... Here I go. I can do anything. I, I just like there is there are parts there were moments for me that were brilliant. Like the sound system, I thought was brilliant. And then when reading the 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 bit about um, how he had installed it in this sort of um, sort of agon with uh, this modernist sculpture, um, as if to as if to f as if to fight it with this sound system. I thought that's a that, that's kind of a a, a poignant gesture, and I like that. Um, and also the smart um, refrigerator setup with the screens and the and the the disembodied sort of um, uh, uh, what's the name of that band? Um, Radiohead kind of um, um, uh, slimmer, f s happier, whatever. Um, that song, that that voice coming out of the refrigerator. I thought that that kind of installation was really evocative and 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 uh, immersive yeah but the rest of it god it just exhausted me it just i just yeah. thought yeah. really and and you're gonna do this now and now you're gonna do this and, and i mean there were parts that were humorous there were parts that were fun but i genuinely do not go for work like this i go for work that's a bit more considered right um, that's a bit more finessed yeah yeah, I, I think that's a curatorial thing, though. Too, to be honest, I, mm. I really. Oh, you mean from PS One? Yeah, but don't yeah, yeah, yeah. You, don't you Absolutely. don't we all think that uh, he was his own curator here? Uh, sure, he had people who were uh, nominally the curators, mm. but do you think there's any decision that was taken there that really bypassed his uh, desires? Mm. Mm. I've, I've I mean, I I would have thought really. I don't know. I see a couple of curators in the audience, yeah. but you always get you know. Again, when I said you're hanging yourself out to dry, you you know, a lot of times, like I'll explain to people, like, <laughs> well, just to put it really bluntly, I'll be like, when I go into MoMA, they're trying to trick me. Yes. You know, there's like you go into the show, you know that it's a framework, you know, and so I have and never and seen. Unless it's Kai Althoff, in which the in which points the the director of the museum says. Uh, um, 
we don't take responsibility for this. Right. Mr. Althoff it's sort of did an what exception, he wanted to do. You know, yeah, more of a project yes. than the retrospective, whereas this was exactly right. that. It was just like, blah. <laughs> it was too much, whereas all the stuff I've seen, like I've, an image that stays in my mind is the Mark Lecky thing at Abrams, if anybody saw that. It was like a lecture performance, so that's kind of his honed thing. And just some of the images in that video were just... Like there was one where someone came and like threw up. It was like very. It was so it directly to the point. Like mm. if you're trying to establish for him, it's a kind of sensibility. You know what I mean? Like that you get. That's what that kind of fear. Fiorucci made me hardcore. I mean, even the hardcore idea or this kind of joy division thing. It's this like really specific um, sensibility, and so mm. you know that that when you have this kind of vastness and again there's like so many objects mm. it's it starts to get watered down so yeah. by the way yes liverpool i i didn't <laughs> I, I didn't want to lay <laughs> down the, uh, i didn't want to lay down the law but <laughs> i i think i can tell that i'm saying uh, 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 uh scouts and a, and a uh, liver yeah exactly uh, but anyway uh but thank you for that you're welcome um i Simon Starling has a show at the moment, another Turner Prize person, mm. um, another sort of fringe YBA at the Japan Society. It's a, it's a reconstruction of a uh, W.B. Yeats reconstruction of an O-drama. And um, Starling and uh, um, uh, Lecky are, are like socially very distinct young British artists in that one is you know scottish based the other's now london based one really plays on his working class roots the other has um a more kind of effete or refined outlook perhaps and yet both of them they really want you to know that they know mm -hmm. i mean and and curiously jacob epstein's rock drill uh a, a great sculpture from 1913 uh a, a vorticist moment in, in Epstein's career, that artifact appears both in the no drama of Simon Starling as one of the masks and very prominently in Mark Leckie's installations here. So an interesting kind of cultural detail that connects these things. But the more important thing that connects them is their didacticism. They want you to know that they know. And folded it's not like there's the art and then there's the press release to go with it it's the press release kind of is the art um actually in the no drama one of the actors turns around and tells you uh, the, about yates's relationship with pound and and in this um like in lecky it's always you know the henry moore in the background and, and then uh william blake's death mask and da 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 to, to anybody who sort of follows it's about it's about the history of British art, what was once avant-garde and then became naff and then became cool again. A great anxiety that then maps back onto Leckie's own status as a cool artist or a, a not cool artist. And he's always performing that, isn't he? I yes. Mean, in, that, in, in that entire exhibition, he's just performing Mark Leckie. So the moment I walk, in, I walk through those doors, I felt like, ah, that's, this is why I'm already a little bit tired. <laughs> already in the... Sorry. Uh, well, I mean, it took... Already, I didn't hear the word. Already in the... Tired. Tired. You're already tired. Yeah. Right. But, but, Ryan, you were energized. You went out and ready to do some uh, working class dance movements. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah? Northern oh. Soul or uh, uh, Acid House? I wouldn't go that far. I was <laughs> trying to... Uh, you weren't dancing down the streets of Queens? You know, uh, 
if everyone saw the show and Fiorucci made me hardcore, I, I think it's one of his high points. It's a great video. It's kind of about the rave scene of um, UK in the 60s through the 90s. Um, but like that video made a big splash when it came out in 99. Paris is Burning, the documentary, came out in 1990. Uh, and that's a great documentary. And it mm -hmm. tells a similar story of kind of how a subculture came to define this generation. Mm -hmm. um, so I think we need to be kind of aware of like, not everything that happens in the art world is the only thing that happens. And like, right. we have to be watching and looking at other things as well. Hmm. Um, and especially when talking about an artist like Mark Leckie, who's so much a sponge for the culture around him. Um, you know, we have to be aware of what else is um, going on in the world. Yeah. Um, but as far as the yeah. organization of their materials and concerns, yeah. because I mean, an artist like uh, Ai Weiwei or um, Damien Hirst, they have... Um, concerns beyond art but they they're presentational artists they mm. they get it down to a slick packageable uh, thing that will go with it's it to follow to follow Seth's um, Freudian um, structure uh, they are all kind of superego aren't they they mm -hmm. are um, mm -hmm. th 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 all these artists have big egos but it's a question of whether they bring in too much id or too much superego and I, perhaps with these the presentational ar artists that um, streamlining you know the 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 shark in the tank mm. uh, with with lecky mm. we're dealing with a a spewed id much more a tricartin and much less of a pursed kind of sensibility. Does that make sense? Is yeah. that demarcation? Well, like maybe a little, uh, uh, not really, but you know, the kind of Jason Rhodes, like, right, bleh, right. You know, right. That's that's the know. one. That's the one I was thinking Jason of. Rhodes. Jason Rhodes, yeah. yeah. Who's really is a, in, kind of a mentor of for for tricartin as well. I'd have mm. thought. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Also, for doing kind of an armchair analysis, this exhibition could only have been done by a man. Like only a male would like think to do this and only a man would kind of be given the resource to do this. He, he was profiled in the New York Times mm. and he had this quote that was really fascinating to me. He said, art is changing. I don't know if what I'm doing feels like it belongs to an older era, one older white man having a show. So it's kind of this like embarrassment, but like, what am I going to do? I'm an older white man. I can do whatever I want, and that's just thank the world we live in. Thank you, thank you for saying that, Ryan, because I think that that's that's really uh, that's incredibly insightful, and reminds me that there was a moment in the show when I felt, oh yeah, I am responding to this like I respond to Matthew Barney's work for precisely those reasons. Like he knows how to like turn on that spigot of mm -hmm. of of himself, mm -hmm. and 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 but do it in such a in such mm -hmm. a kind of um, canny presentation right, right? that it, that it has it reads to me as like um this is important art that i should be paying attention to and uh, but it's, it's as if playing the fool is is a, a manifestation of entitlement because uh, and, and in fact you know if you think of say i don't know if you think to to the 44th and 45th perhaps president you you have the you have writ large exactly what you have to do if you're from one demographic and exactly what you can get away with if mm. you're from another. So mm. that's that's our new paradigm, unfortunately. Mm. But having said well, that... I don't know like if it's new. Uh, <laughs> uh, that's <laughs> it's, uh, it's not. It's, it's our, our new paradigm is that the paradigm didn't change. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, because well, the, the paradigm six weeks ago was, oh, the paradigm seems to be changing. Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. So... Um, but to that extent, but 
Um, that's it's kind of going nuclear to bring in him. So let's just let's just say though, Rosemary Trockel might be just to play devil's advocate one example of an artist who is given a big budget to go overboard and doing that thing that both Starling and uh, Lecky do, which is curating within their own retrospective objects of other artists. I mm. think that's uh, when Steph mentioned it. That's exactly who I was thinking of. Who? Of, of Rosemary Trackle, uh, okay. the show at the new museum. That yeah. was such a like richer and weirder, mm. you know, kind right. of vision. Mm. But it's like still giving carte blanche, isn't it? So yeah, but you know, the, I had the exactly the same thing that like I'm a little Mark Leckied out here, you know, <laughs> and I like his work, you know. Right. But so and that's what I'm saying that it's a bit of a curatorial pro- problem, you know, in the sense of it's sort of like let's, you know juice up these um, and it's the same with the Ai Weiwei you know like right. four shows why mm-hmm. four shows mm. why four ah, shows he's a superstar mm-hmm. you can't, you know, can't and have and one uh, show <laughs> exactly <laughs> right two shows and three <laughs> venues three galleries and four <laughs> venues yes um, conquer the world good um Audience, lots to unpackage there. The the uh, the problematics of the post-colonial in and uh, the uh, equally well, or the the other problematics of the um, the ego and the id in the um, artist as superstar. Um, let's uh, let's start uh, in the order that we played them uh, with um, uh, Daniel Horowitz and and the issues raised um, by his show. Out of curiosity, who, who in the audience, no shame attached, you won't be um, uh, taxed on the information, who, who got to see uh, the, the, uh, the Horowitz show at Tilu? Right, a healthy, a healthy percentage. Um, any comments from, uh, from anybody? I mean, you, you, can, you, you can get some sense of the show from having seen the video. Um, anybody burning with a, uh, a desire to, to speak up or for or out against or um, uh, make any kind of uh, nuanced um, comment in between on on Horowitz. Um, well, if you pluck up the courage after we started talking about Lecky, don't be shy. We'll we'll take we'll take your late later thought on the subject. Um, so, Mark Lecky, who's who's been so far to see the shows at PS One um, of Lecky and Bronig? Oh wow! Just just. Just a few of you? Ah, well, it's Queens. That's yet another borough to visit. Yeah, it's not so far. <laughs> it's not so difficult. You can get there, folks. <laughs> I, when, when, anyone know when the shows are on till at uh, PS1? Like he's up till March 5th. March 5th. Wow, that's a lot. There you are. More, more like the white G-train. male entitlement. Uh, months and months of lecky. <laughs> yeah. Um, a- anybody, uh, anybody want to share? I mean, it's it's maybe time to go and get dinner and discuss it. Yes, uh, Daniel, with no surname, who writes for Hyperallergic, <laughs> uh, is is. My last name is Larkin. Larkin, right. which is Gaelic for fierce. Mm-hmm. I just want to say that I'm really tired of African art objects juxtaposed against Western painting. There was the big brouhaha in Paris, I think in 2008, when they did a Jackson Pollock retrospective in Paris and tried to juxtapose the the African masks with them. And then there was a big brouhaha in the Paris art scene. There was that notorious MoMA show, the primitives from, I think, when I was a baby gay. And it was, again, trying to juxtapose modern art inspired. Primitivism. Prim- it, it's just, it, it just, I just feel like it raises too many questions of white privilege, and so it just seemed like sort of frustrating when he was doing this because there is, 
there, it's been done so many times, and so many times it's gotten the same response, which is this is complicated, offensive, and raises really difficult questions about white privilege. So I was just surprised to see someone doing that in 2016, because we've already had that conversation so many times. Right, okay. Well, I mean, <laughs> I, I'm, I guess I'm gonna stick my neck out. I, I don't think that there's anything inherently wrong with the ambition to do something that perhaps previously has consistently garnered a particular response. That's not the response you're looking for as an artist. I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with that ambition. I do think, and here's, here's a really crude analogy. <sighs> this might actually not be the right analogy, but here we are. Um, there's a way in which people say, well, uh, uh, yeah, actually, I'm not going to use that analogy. It, there's, a w there's a way in which... Um, uh, people say, well, that, that you're just, that's just your sacred cow. And then you're, you're making it, you're carving out a space of, uh, of exception, of exclusivity, right? That only certain people are allowed, only Africans should be allowed to use that. And as an artist, I can imagine wanting to push on that a bit. I, w I can imagine thinking to myself, well, actually... Um, if I set it up this way, if I if I if I um, use the the elements in this kind of combination, then perhaps I can be the person to um, to um, to untie that Gordian knot. So I mean, th I, I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with the ambition. Um, I do think that, as Ryan said, you have to be really really careful when you're in this territory. I mean, because the history is so, um, is so profound um, that, I, that uh, I mean, I, I, I wouldn't want artists to feel paralyzed mm. by the history, mm. but I would want them to treat it with a great deal of respect. Mm. And I think, I think that's what you were calling for. Yeah. But perhaps it's the job of artists to be careless and the job of critics to be careful after them. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much and see you all in the new year. <laughs>